This recording is from Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. More information available at tempe.redemptionaz.com. We're going to continue, pick back up in our series in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open it and turn to Mark chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, slip your hand up, raise it really high, and then someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep the one that we're handing out so that you can follow along with us and and you can grow in an understanding and knowledge of who Christ is. As you turn there, I just want to just remind you something Benjamin talked about, that dodgeball tournament that's coming up. Um, We we said it's to support the kids, and it's true. It's to support the kids, but it's about competition, right? (laughs) And, And Christians compete, and sometimes in ungodly ways, we'll try to not do that. So put together a team, come. There's nothing better than hitting somebody in the face in the name of Jesus. And so... We look forward to seeing you guys uh, there. Benjamin says that he's going to have a team. Um, Benjamin won't have a team. I'm going to have five. Um, and so we'll figure out which one of my five teams can try to win. So anyways, anyways, competition in the name of Jesus. Uh, we're going to start back here in the Gospel of Mark. If you're just joining with us, uh, some of you guys maybe came last week for Easter, and this is your first time at a normal service for us. Uh, we usually teach through books of the Bible. And so some weeks ago, we started the Gospel of Mark, and we took a break for about three weeks, and we're going to pick back up today. So let me just kind of catch you up to speed. Uh, the Gospel of Mark was written by a man by the name of Mark. He wrote on behalf of the Apostle Peter. Primarily what he's writing about is Jesus Christ as God's son and the kingdom of which he's establishing. Um, He writes at a fast-paced speed. And so first we see Jesus is being baptized. And in this baptism, you have the spirit that's present. The father is saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And immediately after that, Jesus begins to begin his, his ministry. And so he's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's restoring people. He's redeeming people. He's got people following him now as disciples. And then one thing's happening. The religious people hate it. You, you would think that Jesus being fully man, fully God, fully man being Jewish, that the Jewish religious leaders would be for Christ, but they're actually against him because he begins to confront them on, on their religion that's not always pure. Of their religion, which is primarily about rules and not about relationship. And so up until this moment, they're challenging him. And the group of people that are challenging the most are a group of people called the Pharisees. They don't trust Jesus. They don't like Jesus. Um, What we've said so far is when you begin to look at the biblical account of Jesus, what you come to grips with really quick is that this, Jesus doesn't fit any categories we try to put him in. Like he just doesn't fit any of our categories. He didn't fit the categories in his day. He doesn't fit, fit the categories that we have even in our, our day. So on one hand, we said that he was far too liberal for the conservatives of his day. They just couldn't deal with it, right? I mean, he's hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. He's uh, touching dead bodies. He's hanging out with them, eating and drinking. He's in the club with them. They didn't like that, right? And so on the flip side, though, he was far too conservative for liberals because they, he believed in God's word. He he believed in a bodily resurrection. He believed that there was one way for salvation, and that was in his life and his death and his resurrection. And so ultimately, both sides didn't really like him to the point that what we'll see is they killed him. And, And following Jesus is no different than that, that we shouldn't necessarily find ourselves stuck in a category because we happen to follow a risen Savior who's not in a category that we can particularly find. And so that's why you have the makeup of God's church, people who come from all different uh, walks of life. Well, tying down and narrowing what we're looking at this morning is Jesus now being confronted again with the religious rulers. 
Um, and then the stories that we have in Mark chapter 2, um, there's two stories about the Sabbath here. And then at the very end of Mark, we have Jesus doing something on the Sabbath with the Pharisees don't like. And then the very beginning of Mark chapter 3 is you have Jesus again doing something on the Sabbath. Um, and so that's what we'll pick up today. And just for the sake of flow, uh, the first story is Jesus confronting false religion. And what he's confronting in this false religion is religion that puts rules um, without relationship. Like, here's the things that you need to do and do them right without a relationship with God. The second story that we have is actually uh, when people have conviction over compassion or without compassion. So they're serious about doing the right things. They're serious about knowing the right things, but not caring and loving people. So rules without relationship and then conviction without compassion. So if you're with me in Mark chapter 2, let's look at verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And so before we can even see why this is even important, why the Pharisees are even concerned about the Sabbath, let's talk a little bit about the Sabbath. Um, In our Western minds, the Sabbath doesn't really mean anything. Um, In fact, when you think about just sacred places in itself, it's not something we're used to. Most major religions, they venerate sacred places. And so um, whether if you're, it's Islam, it's Mecca. If it's Judaism, it's Jerusalem. And not only just places, but even act- activities that they do. So in, in Jewish culture, uh, the two big things are, were circumcision and um, Sabbath. We'll deal with circumcision at a different time. So today we're going to talk about Sabbath. And the Sabbath was something that God instituted and gave his people. God himself had a Sabbath. The Bible lets us know in the very, very beginning that God created, and on the, on the seventh day, he rested. He rested not because he was tired. Because God got tired. God wasn't tired. He's God. He rested because he was satisfied. If you go back and read Genesis, what you see over and over again is God saying, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, and he rested and he enjoyed what he, what he created. And then he gave his people Sabbath. And the Sabbath in itself was so that the people of God would know that God is the one who provides God is the one who brings comfort, God is the one who protects, and that God is the one in which you could be satisfied in. It's him that you find rest. And so there were laws that were given to the people of God on what not to do on the Sabbath in order that they may have rest. The rules were there because of the relationship. Unfortunately, there were people who began to add to the rules, and in adding to the rules, they got rid of the relationship. And so there were things like, um, it was said you shouldn't work. Well, some of the things the Pharisees added to it was you can't even walk a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath. Like, you, 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 you reached like a limit. And so if you went past 800 meters, you had sinned against God because you had went 800 meters. I don't know what you did if they, oh, uh-oh, shoot, Fitbit, done, right? I have no idea how they calculated it, but they had all of these rules to the point that that's all they cared about and not the relationship. So here's what the Pharisees are doing. They're trying to catch Jesus. They don't want him around anymore. He's been a problem for them. And so that they can catch him doing something against God's word, then they feel like they can convict him. And so that's where we pick up. He is with his disciples. They're walking around. It's on the Sabbath. They're hungry. They walk past some grain. They, take, they pluck the grains off, and then they rub it between their hands and gets the husk off, and then they eat the kernel, and they snack on it because they're hungry. It's not like it's like the most delicious meal in the world, raw grain, but they're eating it. And the Pharisees immediately pounced upon Jesus here in verse 24. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, was it not lawful for them to eat? No. Um, Did God say, hey, if it's the Sabbath and you're hungry, you better not eat, just eat the next day? No. Um, 
he did say that you, you cannot put the sickle to the grain, but that, that means you were working, but you were able to actually pluck it. Um, but since they had taken the rule so far, the way they interpreted it was saying, you're breaking the law. And instead of Jesus being like, no, you're wrong, I'm God, I created the law, he doesn't even go there yet, um, he says this, verse, 20, uh, verse 25, um, he says, have you ever read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, in, in, when it comes to the Jewish religion, there are at least three people you just don't mess with, right? You don't mess with Abraham, you don't mess with Moses, and you don't mess with David. Like, those were pillars, right? And so Jesus goes, okay, you guys remember David, right? And if you were a Pharisee, you'd be like, yeah, we know who David is. David was the best king they'd ever had. In fact, God had told David that through your lineage, I'm going to bring the Messiah. And they've been waiting on this Messiah that would come through the lineage of David. They have no idea that Jesus is him, that God's son is the Messiah that comes from the lineage of David. So he shares this story that you can read about in 1 Samuel. He goes, you remember when David, he was with his people and they were hungry and they got to the tabernacle and in the tabernacle there was particular bread and this bread was set aside only for the priest to eat and nobody else was supposed to eat this bread except the, except the priest. But they were hungry and of course God cares about people and their physical needs and so David goes to the priest and he says, hey, we don't have anything to eat. And the priest says, here, eat this bread. David ate it and his people ate it. And, and Jesus is saying, what do you do with that? Like, they're not, the Pharisees aren't going to go, well, David is wrong. They can't. You can't mess with David, right? So what you do have, though, is I don't even think that Jesus is saying that just to say he's trying to make an exception to the rule. He's not. Jesus is not anti-rules, right? He's not anti-law. Law is a good thing. But he's all about the relationship. What he's ultimately doing is he's pointing to himself, of, of saying the reason why David was able to do that because David was king. And even D David knew that there was one to come from David that would be greater than David. And Jesus is in essence telling the Pharisees, why are you tripping over these rules when the relationship that the rules were established for is right in front of you? And they don't get it. And sadly, many of us don't get it either. And so Jesus begins to look at them and he says this. Verse 27, he says, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here's what he's saying there. The Sabbath was not, the, the man was not made for the Sabbath, meaning God didn't put a Sabbath there. He didn't put laws there. He didn't put rules there in order for us to follow those rules in order to make ourselves right before him, right? Here's what the Pharisees naturally did, is that they looked at God's law. They looked at God, what God said to do, and they used it as a means to make a relationship with God. It was never meant for that. They looked at the Sabbath, and God said, hey, here's what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is a means in which you can know that I will provide. It was about God, about the rest that God provides, about his presence, the, the fact that he would be the one who would restore. He would be the one that would replenish, that would point us to God. Well, they had added so many rules that it pointed them away from God and what they could do and what they could not do. And here's the danger of this, is that many Bible-believing people, many of us in this room, that we are in danger of doing the same that we can look at all the imperatives, that is what God has called us to do, and we can find ourselves avoiding areas of sin and doing all really good things to the point, though, that we actually miss the relationship and joy that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meaning, meaning you can do those things apart from really knowing God. 
that you can hand the Bible to people and say, read it, here's some things you should do, here's some things you shouldn't do, and on the surface, they can look like good, godly Christians, and yet they don't have a relationship with God. That's what the Pharisees were like, and they missed it because they saw the rules without the relationship. Now, now here's what the rules will do. The rules will give you God's law as a standard, and naturally what people do is they replace the relationship with God with the law in itself. And the law became the center of which they lived their life on what to do and what not to do. And that's what their religion became about apart from God. Um, Here's the thing. When you use the law that way, you look at God as someone whom we need to catch up to, right? He's the standard, which he is. And then we look at it and interpret it as he's someone we need to catch up to. The Sabbath is there so that we can do these things in order to catch up to God. Here's the reality. You're never going to catch up to God. He's gone, right? I don't know if you guys have ever had that experience where you've tried to um, run with someone who's much faster than you. Oh, you haven't. Oh, just me, shockingly. Hmm. Um, so there's, there, there's a reality that, that you know what that's like. You're just never going to do it. So I just started working. I've been trying to work out again. And, and I say that word trying because I've been trying for the past 10 years. But this is the year. <laughs> this is the year. So I've been working out. And there's a, there's a guy who's training with us right now who's significantly faster than I am. Um, he's a professional athlete. Now, even if I were in shape, I couldn't be as fast as this guy is. Like, when we get done running, one, he's so far ahead of me, and then he finishes, he puts his hand over his head, and he kind of breathes a little bit, and then, and then I get done, and I'm, like, barreled over. I'm praying, Lord Jesus, come soon. All right, you know, I, I, can't, I can barely breathe. I think my heart was left down the field. Like, what's going on, right? Now, what happens is I will look at him and the way that he runs and his form, and I will try to mimic that, and I will try to try as hard as I can to catch up, I'm going to die. Literally, I'm probably going to die. What happened to your dad, kids? He died. I'm trying to catch up with this guy, right? And I don't want that to happen. It's impossible is what I'm trying to tell you. It's impossible for me to catch this guy. He is created in such a way that is better than me, and I can honestly say that. And jealous, yes, but point being, if God is the standard, you're never going to catch him. And the good news that Jesus is talking about him being Lord of the Sabbath is he didn't create it for you to catch him. He actually fulfilled what you were supposed to do. That that when he says that he, the Sabbath was made for man, the Sabbath was an opportunity, a means for us to realize God is not the one, God is the one who's chasing us, not us chasing him. He's the one who wants to be with us. And he's not slowing down, he's saying, you're never gonna be able to reach that standard, so I will reach it on your behalf and offer it to you. It's something that you receive, not something you strive for. That's the whole essence of grace. That's the whole essence of being in relationship with God. It's not that he, you have to go out looking for him. He happens to send his son Jesus to come find you, and it becomes good news. And so whereas that the Pharisees were using the law as to be the center of their life, were using the rules as a way to measure themselves up before God and each other, God himself said it was not for that. Jesus says the Sabbath was not made for man, or man was not made for the Sabbath. Um, and verse 28 says this, so the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. Here's what he's saying. The Son of Man is one of the favorite, favorite phrases Jesus loves to use to talk about himself. He goes, I'm the Lord over the Sabbath. He's not saying because I get to control it, I'm changing the rules. He's saying, no. You know what the Sabbath pointed to? A day of rest perpetual rest, when things will be the way they're supposed to be. And Jesus is saying, not just I'm a part of it, he goes, I'm it. 
that the ultimate rest that the Sabbath was pointing to is found in Jesus. That you can rest from your works. You can rest from trying to live up to the law. You can rest from trying to strive because now everything that you needed to attain, Christ is saying, I fulfilled on your behalf. And so, so the per- righteous, holy, perfect purpose of the law could only be attained and recovered in relationship with Jesus Christ. It's ours only in Jesus Christ. The Pharisees didn't get that. It was a stumbling block to them. And often to us, it becomes a stumbling block because we feel like we need to do something for it. And Jesus is saying, there's nothing you can do for it to earn it. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to lose it. It's something we receive by faith. Amen? Jesus becomes rest for us because his work, his finished work, we go all the way back to creation. When God said it, when he, when he said it's done, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's done. And then when we sin against God and we, we begin to mess up that relationship, Jesus Christ goes to the cross. And what does he say? It's finished. It's done. Everything that needed to be accomplished is already accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. There's no need to work for anything else other to rest in him. So Sabbath, being one of those things, is the truest Sabbath we can have is not what we can do or what we can't do. It's by resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and him dying for our sins and him giving us his righteousness in which we can have relationship with God for all eternity and the rules get placed in their proper place. The rules are there to keep the relationship intact and who God is and what God has done for us. The first story Jesus has here is showing how he's being confronted on the Sabbath. That false religion is always rules without relationship. Where biblical Christianity is always first and foremost relationship with Jesus, who's already lived up the rules for us. And the rules that he gives us now is how to love him and how to live in his love, how to maintain in his love, and how to be sustained by his love and his grace. Well, that's not the only encounter Jesus has with the Pharisees. In fact, the next one is even worse because the next one they're trying to plot ultimately to get him to be killed. If you read with me again in um, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Again, he entered a synagogue, and the man was there with the withered hand. And the man was there with the withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So here's the context of this second story is they're in the synagogue. And if you weren't here a few weeks ago, here's what a synagogue was. A synagogue was the equivalent of a church building for Christians today. It was a building that was built that um, people can come in and gather and they can hear God's word being taught. Usually they'd walk in, sit down, and a guy would come and get this, the, the Bible, um, Old Testament scripture and a scroll, and he'd, he'd teach it, and, and people would hear God's word, and they'd go home. And so that, that was basically like what we do on a Sunday here. And so they're in a synagogue, and there's, uh, there's three parties here that we know about. There's the Pharisees, which the whole purpose there is they want to see Jesus do something wrong. And then you have Jesus who's there, who's always for the good. And then you have this man with a withered hand. And a withered hand meant that his hand did not work. Um, it was usually probably just stiff. Um, and I don't know how long it hasn't been working, but it hasn't been working for him, which is a big deal because in that day you made most of your money with your hands. And so he was limited at some level. And, and, and now, in the synagogue, again, the Pharisees are not there to hear the word of God being taught. They're there to see, is Jesus going to do something else on the Sabbath? Is he going to do something else he should not be doing? And check this out. If you read back with me again, this is interesting. It says, and again, he went in the synagogue, verse 1, um, and a man was there with a withered hand. And in verse 2, it says, and they watched Jesus. That language there literally meant they were like watching, anticipating, waiting, like do something wrong so we can get you, Right? I don't know if you guys ever had that where you wanted somebody to do something wrong. You wanted them to fail. You guys have ever, once again, you guys have never had that, right? 
you, you've at least had it with your, the, you know, your, your enemy team, like your, your rival team. Like you're like, I hope they lose in the Elite Eight again. Like you never had that before. Um, I mean, some people have that, right? And so you, you want someone to lose. Now, the, the interesting part here is I think to capture what's happening in this moment with the Pharisees, um, there's, a, there's a comedian named Cedric the Entertainer. And uh, he has these, these philosophies that people work under. One, one he calls is, is the wish factor, or the hope factor, and the other one is a wish factor. And so the hope factor is if you're, you're late to a sporting event, but you already have the tickets, you know, you have your seats, and you're late, and so you say, man, you know what? I really hope nobody is sitting in our seats when we get there because you don't want confrontation. I really hope. That's the hope factor, he says. The latter, he says, is the wish factor. You're late, you have tickets, and you go, I wish somebody would be sitting in our seats when we get there, right? And there's a difference, like confrontation. We want confrontation. I, I, wish, I wish somebody would. And then over here, is, it, it's hope. I, I really hope. I really, really hope that nobody's sitting in our seat. I don't want to deal with anything. Here, um, I wish they would watch what's going to happen if they sit in my seat, and you have all these things you would do. The Pharisees were actually working under the, the wish factor, <laughs> They were looking at Jesus like, I wish he would heal somebody today. <laughs> Watch what we do, right? And, and, and that's exactly what they do. And Jesus knows it. Jesus knows it. So verse 3 here, it says, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? You know what's interesting about this? This man is just an innocent bystander. He's just there. I guarantee you he went for all the right reasons. I'm going to show up to church today. I'm going to hear the word. I'm going to go home, watch some golf, and take a nap. Like, that, that, that's all I'm going to do today, right? He had no idea that he was coming into this battle between the Pharisees and Jesus. And so he shows up, and he's there with his, his disabled hand, his crippled hand. And, and Jesus says, hey, why don't you stand up? And that had to be hard for him. Because the last thing that he wants to do is stand up in front of all of these people that he, that he may know or may not know and expose his disability. Expose this thing that probably has kept him back for many, many years. And Jesus, Jesus says, come here. And it's me, come here, come to me. And Jesus in, initiates this. You know, all the other times so far, um, the people have been brought to Jesus. And people have come to Jesus and say, heal me. This is the one time Jesus goes, watch me do this. In fact, when you read through the Gospels, the only time that Jesus initiates healings is on the Sabbath. And I think he's doing it purposely to tell the Pharisees, you don't get it. The Sabbath is not meant to keep people down because that's not what God is about. It's to heal. It's to restore. It's to provide rest. And so he looks at them and he goes, what's better, guys? To, to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? What, what are you guys doing? And he's looking at the Pharisees thinking, you're in church today. And the one thing that you're thinking about is for me to do wrong instead of the fact that I have the ability, I have the power, and I have the authority to help this man. And you don't even care. All right. Um, that's, it's hard for us to see ourselves as Pharisees. It really is. But we are so much like Pharisees. We come into a church service with so many things. The last thing we think about is that somebody might get healed. We come to church with so many other thoughts about needs we think that God needs to meet for us. The last thing that we're thinking about is the other. We, we, we come because our friends are here, our family are here, there's people who we like here, we like things about it. But the last thing we're thinking about is who's not here, who should be here. We're more like Pharisees than we think. And here's Jesus' response to them, and I hope it's a warning to us. He, he says this, and he said to them, is it lawful to do, 
on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or to kill, but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at their, the sadness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Um, Jesus says he, he looked around at them and he says he was upset. He was angry. He was grieved at the hardness of heart. And listen, listen to this. He's mad, guys. The, 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 we, we can't give the language um, for what Jesus is feeling here. This, this anger is a, a righteous anger. And, and he's mad because he's looking at the people who should know better. You know why? They have it. They have God's word. I mean, they claim to know God's word. They sit underneath the teaching week after week after week after week, and yet they know orthodoxy, which is just good truth, healthy truth, and yet they're not living it. And when it says their hardness of hearts, it's not that they just don't believe. It's saying that they don't care. They are unwilling to care about this man's need. Jesus is pointing out something here, too, about religion. Um, their false religion will always have conviction, but without compassion. Meaning there are certain sins that they will put way up here and say, you better do these. It's usually sins of morality. You better not be sleeping with your boyfriend. You better tell the truth. You better pay your taxes. You better do all of those things right. But when it comes to things of like injustice, care for the poor, the marginalized, we'll get to that. And even that is a means to an end, maybe to share the gospel instead of just caring for them. And yet when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus is constantly saying, this is what true religion is like. This is what pure religion is like. Jesus' younger brother, James, that's what he says. This is what religion is like. People who actually look after orphan and widows, people who look after the most vulnerable in their particular community. Okay, this has to hit home at us, right? We can't just go, these are the Pharisees. We're not Pharisees. Yes, we are. We're a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church. And I just wonder, if not, not in our intentions of do we want to care for the least of these, do we want to care for those with the withered hands, not our intentions, but our actual actions. I mean, if you look at your checking book, right, if you look at your Facebook account, if you look at your calendar, um, how many of those people end up there? That there's a way in which we can have all the right teaching and not be doing the right living. And Jesus is upset with that. You know what he's not upset with? He's not upset with the man. <laughs> and yet the man here gives us the clue of beginning to be able to understand how to live this. The, the man here in this story gives us a clue and what it looks like for us to actually live in the true Sabbath and the rest in Jesus. He gives us a clue of what it looks like to actually live in the kingdom, what it looks like to follow Jesus. He gets up, acknowledges his weakness before everybody, knowing that everybody can see it, and he puts trust in Jesus. <laughs> It was as simple as that. Let me pause here. This is really hard for me. And this is something that God has really, really been challenging me on. And that is, do, do I believe this? Do we believe this? We spent a year and a half or two years or so in Romans talking doctrine. We never really had to deal with the miracle. Other than the miracle of salvation, which is a beautiful miracle, but... We, we taught about doctrine, we taught about justification, we talked about sanctification, we talked about predestination, we talked about judgment, we talked about all of these things that you could just read through and read through and read through. For the most part, you don't have to have an incredible amount of faith. But man, as we've been walking through Mark, I don't know about you, it's just going, casting out a demon, healing a man, caring for the least of these, hanging out with prostitutes and sinners. I literally thought, not that I'm trying to do this, if my congregation saw me with prostitutes, they'd be like, oh, right? Do we believe this? Do, do we believe that the things that Jesus did then, that Jesus does now? I, I was, we were praying with, with the family this morning that 
they're kind of going through some issues and we're praying with them. I was talking to the wife afterwards. Um, she's going through some physical pain and I said, you know what, I'm gonna be honest with you. I prayed for you and I really believe God can heal you, but it's something that God's really challenged me on. I believe that when I knew little about the Bible, I believed big about God. But somehow the more theology, the more doctrine, the more books, the more everything, I, I begin to somehow not pray those big prayers anymore. I'm not saying that you shouldn't read those books and you shouldn't know those things. I'm just saying something happened. There's something about just believing the bigness of a person and asking according to what you believe about them. You guys get what I'm saying? Think of it like this. My kids, my kids will ask me for anything. They will. Can we have Disneyland? Can you go to Disneyland? No, Dad, can we have it? <laughs> um, sure, <laughs> right? No, kids will ask you that because they believe something about you. There, there's, there's a moment that we'll ask God for anything until we stop believing it about him. So the question I have for myself and the question I have for us is, do we actually believe that about God? Or we warn people to go, you know what, since he hasn't done it for a while, then maybe, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be praying for that. Maybe we should be praying for the things that we know we can do. Like, we want God to have a high batting percentage. Like, every time we get up the bat and we pray for things, we want to make sure he comes through. And so we don't want to put him in positions where he can't come through. He's God. He's God. We, we're not. I think more than anything, um, we find ourselves like the man. We have withered hearts. And we need God himself to ask us to stand up in order that he would begin to heal our hearts. Some of us to save us, that we may believe in Jesus for the first time, that we may have a rest in Christ that we've never had. Some of us that we may believe afresh to go, God, I confess, I, I have failed and stopped to believe for you to be God. I, I believe in other things, things that I can empirically prove or disprove. Um, I believe in so many other things, Lord, but I, I failed to believe that you were God and you were God alone, that you, you supersede anything else that I can imagine, that you are the uncreated, that you have no start, you have no ending, you are God. You are the Alpha and Omega, everything that you say about yourself, that you heal, you restore, you redeem, you, you are God. Um, this man, he believed enough, right? Um, he, he, he gives us the blueprint. He stands up, he understands his hand doesn't work, and he trusts in the one who he believes that can, that can give him hope. That's it. He says, I don't know, I've probably tried everything else, but this guy right here, this guy, Jesus Christ, I'll trust him. Um, that's the essence of entering into the Sabbath rest, um, it's not about just following rules. It's not just about having convictions about the right things. It's about looking to the right one and standing up, right, publicly. It is a public demonstration of his faith. We don't know this guy's name. We, we don't, he didn't even say anything. He just stood up and said, that guy, what, that guy who called me, if he called me, I'm following that guy. I mean, that, that's what it's all about. Like the rest that Jesus promises, the forgiveness of sins, the eternal life, all of it comes up as simple as publicly standing up and saying, my life to that guy. That guy, Jesus, my life. He's worth it. For many of us who are Christians and have believed in him, it is us saying, Lord, like the man in the Gospels, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Because I read this, and I read it sometimes like a science book instead of being the authority of my life. And the God who loves me, who died for me, he does these things. I mean, think about it, guys. We just celebrated the resurrection last week. If we can believe that God can raise a dead body from the dead, how could we not believe that he could heal? How could we not believe that he could save, that he can redeem, that he could restore? This man gets it. He gets it first and foremost, <laughs> a man with a withered hand who can stand up and say, my hand and my whole life, with that guy, Jesus. Here's what I'm praying for. Um, many of you will get up today, someone will get up, and they will stand up before people, and they were going to get baptized, and they're publicly going to say, 
that guy, Jesus. Some of us need to have a recommitment where we look at this and go, maybe I'm more concerned with rules. Maybe I'm more concerned with what I think. Maybe I'm more concerned with what people think, and I need to stand up for everybody and go, my heart's withering. But that guy, Jesus, I give him my heart, and I give him the rest of my life. My marriage is withering, and I stand up, and I'm going to be honest with you. It is, and I'm giving it to that guy, Jesus. Um, my thought process, um, my desires, my affection, my life is bleak with sin right now, but I'm giving it to that man, Jesus. And all who give it to that man, Jesus Christ, happens to be entering into the greatest rest that you will have for the rest of your life. Amen? Let's pray. God, we, we thank you. We thank you that you give us more opportunity than is deserving to us. Any opportunity is more than what we deserve. And God, I confess, Lord, that we have a weird dichotomy, Lord, that if you know the Bible, sometimes, Lord, you don't live that way. And sometimes, Lord, we could be so socially minded, but we don't understand about the Bible. And I ask that, Lord, by your spirit and through your grace, that you, wouldn't, you would let us be whole, that we'd believe what you say, we would do what you say, we would enter and live into the rest that you've established for us through the work of your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would, you would call us afresh to yourself, Lord, that like the man with the withered hand, that we would stand up, acknowledge our brokenness, acknowledge our weakness, but acknowledge our Savior, the one who stands ready to redeem. Increase our faith in you and your word and your promises. God, I pray that we would actually live out what we say we believe. We would live into the power of the resurrection of Christ. Lord, our whole lives would be shaped by the cross, understanding suffering, Lord, understanding that pure religion in itself, Lord, would always care for the least of these around us. God, that you would do in us, Lord, what we couldn't think, ask, or imagine, Lord, not just individually, but corporately as a body. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his blood. We thank you for the opportunity of faith. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the greatest Sabbath, and that is through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. We praise you in his name. Amen.